Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... I got a charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. In the days after the United States entered World War II, it became clear that the public needed to know more. More about why we were at war, who we were at war with, who our allies were, who our enemies were. So in the summer of 1942, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt created the United States Office of War Information. It would create posters, magazine articles, and films to show the American public what we were up to overseas. Believe me, today we've been through some of the real stuff. The fellows are asleep now. They're half dead with exhaustion. They're filthy with sweat and dirt. But take my word for it, Mom. They're grand soldiers, every one of them. Encourage patriotism. Just what does Mrs. Exception mean when she tells you she had to give up her Red Cross work because it didn't leave her time enough to get her hair done each week? And explain why we were removing over 100,000 people from their homes and sending them to camps in desolate regions of rural America. All persons of Japanese descent were required to register. They gathered in their own churches and schools, and the Japanese themselves cheerfully handled the enormous paperwork involved in the migration. This is Civics 101. I'm Hannah McCarthy. I'm Nick Capodice. And today we are talking about the four-year period during which American citizens were ordered to leave their homes, friends, schools, and businesses behind to live under armed guard. We're talking about Japanese-American confinement during World War II. And if you haven't heard it, this is something of a companion episode to Korematsu versus the United States, the case that unsuccessfully challenged what we'll be talking about today. So I was born in 1934. Of course, you know, study a little bit of history. It just, I think there's been a, a remarkable change in our country. You know, it's still ongoing. It's not complete, but there's been a change. And I think my life is kind of an illustration of that. This is Judge Wallace Tashima. If you've heard our episode on the Supreme Court case Korematsu versus the United States, then you already know his voice. Judge Tashima is a senior United States Circuit Judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit and currently lives in Los Angeles, California. I was born in Santa Maria, California. My father, who was an immigrant from Japan, my mother was also an immigrant from Japan, and my father was a, a graduate of the University of Utah. And uh, I was born in Santa Maria, where he was the, uh, I guess, the executive manager of a farmer's co-op. Santa Maria is a big farming area. Judge Tashima's father passed away when he was about four, and his mother moved the family to L.A. 
That is where they were on December 7, 1941, when the Empire of Japan launched a surprise attack on the naval base at Pearl Harbor in Honolulu, Hawaii. Nearly 2,400 people were killed, including some civilians. Now, up until this point, the United States had been officially neutral in the world war that had been raging for nearly three years. And that was over now. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. So Judge Tashima was pretty young when this happened. He was, and he makes clear that his memories are that of a young boy. He doesn't remember everything. He didn't grasp everything that was going on at the time. But he still has many memories. It's just him, his sisters, and his mom. A family of Japanese descent living in California in the wake of an attack by the Japanese Empire. In May of 1942, we were uh, we were sent to this, uh, what they call the, the War Relocation uh, Center, which was, uh, you know, like an internment camp. It was an internment camp. The one we were sent to was called a Poston. It was on the Arizona side of the Colorado River. And to show how how many people were there, I think there were about 15,000 uh, Japanese Americans in Poston. Right away, it became the third largest, you know, if you, if you could call it a city, city in Arizona, because Arizona was, you know, not heavily populated. Poston was the largest of 10 internment camps scattered across the country where nearly 120,000 people of Japanese descent eventually landed following President Roosevelt's Executive Order 9066. Did that order specifically call for the removal and relocation of Japanese Americans? Actually, the order authorized the military to remove and relocate anybody from designated, quote, military areas. But the military targeted people of Japanese descent. Any understanding of the Japanese-American incarceration during World War II has to start with an understanding of the history of anti-Asian sentiment in this country going all the way back to the immigration of Chinese, um, mainly um, Chinese, um, during the late 1800s. This is Professor Lorraine Benai. She's the director of the Fred T. Korematsu Center for Law and Equality and a professor of lawyering skills at Seattle University School of Law. There were um, just a host of anti-Asian laws. Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans um, were prohibited from intermarrying with whites. Asian Americans were prohibited from owning land. Asian American children were placed in segregated school. We see many of the same types of racist laws directed against other immigrant communities um, and people of color in this country directed against Asian Americans. So the bombing of Pearl Harbor took place against this atmosphere of racism and hate. As iron ore is melted in furnaces to remove impurities, so in Japan, humanitarian impurities are burned out of the child. As the steel is shaped by beating and hammering, 
So is the boy, hammered and beaten into the shape of the fanatic samurai. You know, in the days that followed, community leaders were picked up. Um, there was a call from the popular press, the public, newspapers to get rid of Japanese Americans from the West Coast, um, believing that they were a threat to the country. So this demand to remove and relocate anyone of Japanese descent, it's not simply a result of the attack on Pearl Harbor. It came after years and years of bigotry and mistrust and legislation passed against Asian immigrants and Asian Americans. And it isn't just the press who calls for the removal of anyone who looks Japanese. It's economic and nativist lobbying groups who have long viewed Japanese people as a threat. It's also people from all levels of government. So President Roosevelt finally signs Executive Order 9066 on February 19, 1942. You can imagine or try to imagine that all of a sudden you are looked like as the enemy because you're, you're of Japanese ancestry, even though you're born in, in this country. You're looked like the enemy. This is Karen Korematsu, daughter of Fred Korematsu, the man who challenged Executive Order 9066 by staying put. She now runs the Fred T. Korematsu Institute. Not only were people's possessions and their livelihood and their, and their homes stripped from them, their dignity was stripped from them. And we all want to have our dignity, to be proud of ourselves. And when, when people look at you like it's your fault of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, that it's your fault for, for this war, and you, you're powerless. And it's very, very scary because that weight is on your shoulders. Real quick, what were the military areas that people of Japanese descent were required to leave? All you need to know is that this includes all of California and Alaska and parts of Washington, Oregon and Arizona. So the entire West Coast of the United States. The whole thing, off limits to Japanese Americans and nationals. And that's regardless of age, health, occupation or even reasonable suspicion. There were no charges against them. They had no trials and there was no allegation that any had engaged specifically individually had engaged in acts of espionage or sabotage. Every person of Japanese ancestry was moved. There's a, some really famous footage of soldiers kind of between them carrying an elderly, I mean, holding up an elderly woman between them who can barely walk. Um, but people were moved regardless of age. My, my grandmother was a blind uh, mother of five children, who had moved, her son was a teenager at the time, but people were elderly and were ill and orphans and everyone was moved without exception. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because <laughs> the charcoal mask, great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice, I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Life is a highway. 
and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hey there, everyone. Hey, folks. The whole Civics 101 team is here in D.C. for a week. That's why you hear cars and stuff whizzing by. Uh, we are in the district to talk to the people that we talk about on a daily basis. And a lot of those people work in the executive branch. That is the largest employer in the world. And a lot of those people work in the civil service, where, after the assassination of James Garfield, it's a long story, they take an exam to make sure that they are the right person for their job. But if you run a business, and you're not the federal government, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all, but to match instead with Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 23 hires are made on Indeed every minute, and their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use it, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com civics. Just go to Indeed.com slash civics right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed. So Hannah, a guest recently wrote in to ask us which branch of government and agency was in charge of this effort. Was it the executive branch? Did President Roosevelt have a major say in what went on? The thing about Executive Order 9066 is that it's simply a military authorization. So while Roosevelt focused on the war, the Army, and specifically General John DeWitt, who was in charge of the Western Defense Command of the Army, targeted and removed people of Japanese descent from these, quote, military zones. No one knew what would happen among this concentrated population if Japanese forces should try to invade our shores. Military authorities therefore determined that all of them Citizens and aliens alike would have to move. All of this fell under various arms of the executive branch. So step one is the army. After that, temporary wartime agencies took over. Uh, step two is the removal of Japanese Americans and immigrants to temporary relocation centers. And step three is the transfer of these individuals to formal internment camps for the duration of the war. Places like post-in-war relocation center, where Judge Tashima and his family ended up. I spent three years and three months there, from May 42 to August of 1945. So I completed the, what, third, fourth, and fifth grade in that internment camp. That's just so difficult for me to imagine, because when you're that young, it, just a year of school is a long time. But three years of school is a huge chunk of your entire life. And what were the living conditions like? We lived in barracks, all internees were housed in these barracks. I would say my best estimate now is probably about the size of a two-car garage, a room about that size. Uh, and we had five in our family. My mother was a widow, and I had three sisters and myself. Four, four, she had four kids. So five of us lived in, lived in this one room. You know, so there was no privacy, so to speak. No privacy in a room the size of a garage is tough, to say the least. But the Tashimas and everyone else made do. So, you know, you put up ropes and, you know, hang blankets and stuff like that. There was no plumbing, but there was, a, there was electricity. Each block had, had a tank of fuel oil. So we had to go get our own fuel oil to, you know, fuel up our, uh, 
heater in, in the unit. They had like central, you know, restroom facilities called latrines then, a women's latrine and a men's latrine, and also a central laundry room where you could go and do their laundry. And of course, there was, uh, there was no furniture. No one had any furniture. All they gave you was a bed and a mattress. Judge Tashima went to school, made friends, played on the weekends. This is nearly four years of life for most of the people in these camps. So you had to find a way to go on. You know, there were no recreation facilities there. No playgrounds, nothing. But people, you know, build basketball courts, you know, the baseball field, stuff like that. There was a huge uh, irrigation canal that ran right to the camp. So they made a big, like a, like a swimming hole. So we swam in there. And I learned to swim at quite a young age because there was about nothing else to do in the summertime. Speaking of getting on with your life, how did these individuals and families make their spaces comfortable? Were they allowed to bring stuff from their homes? Only what you could carry. So Judge Tashima says people got pretty much everything else from the Sears Roebuck catalog. Uh, there were no stores, no grocery stores, no drug stores, no department stores, nothing. Everybody used to order their clothes from Sears Roebuck. Everybody had a Sears Roebuck catalog. But where did the money come from to do that, Hannah? Everyone was forced to leave their jobs, so how could they pay for anything from Sears Roebuck? Well, okay, for one, the government covered food and the meager housing. And people did have access to their funds, with the exception of a few who had their bank accounts frozen. Uh, And there were jobs at the camps. A number of the internees were professional people. You know, doctors and nurses and dentists and stuff like that. Those people got highly paid at something like $26 a month. And, you know, if you were if you were cooking the mess all you might you could make maybe $15 a month. So it was that kind of wage structure. There were a bunch of uh, uh, Caucasian workers there. Some worked in the hospital. My uh, third grade teacher there was a Caucasian woman. And they lived in a separate, almost like se- separate little town. Judge Tashima told me, by the way, that these white workers were also paid significantly more than internees. That strikes me as just another small example of how the government was explicitly treating these internees as something closer to prisoners than to untried, unconvicted, innocent, loyal citizens. Which brings me to one point I know we covered in our Korematsu U.S. episode, but it's about the terminology here. We've been saying internment and internee, because that's what the government called and calls it, and it's more likely what you'll read in a history textbook. But Karen and Lorraine call this incarceration. And that is the term advocated for by organizations who are trying to keep this history alive. And it's not the only government-used term that's challenged. People don't understand that you know, the Japanese-American incarceration, right? We, we were trying to bring attention to the euphemisms that were, were used at that time to kind of soft pedal the government's, uh, you know, outright uh, really racist act against Japanese-Americans. Uh, and so, you know, the, like you used the, the refer to the term of e- evacuation, which I can tell you that even, you know, five-year-olds and six-year-olds understand evacuation. You know, if, whether you're living in California and you have earthquakes or you're you know, in the middle of the country and you have tornadoes or you're in, in Louisiana in, in hurricanes, right? It's, it's to be removed for your own safety. 
well, the Japanese Americans weren't removed for their own safety. They were forced from their homes. They lost their possessions just because all of them looked like the enemy, quote unquote. And what happened to the homes of these 120,000 people? Did the government seize their property? No, but they might as well have. I mean, when the, quote, evacuation order came down, people had between a week and 10 days to either find someone to take and protect their property or to sell it off. You could either sell your home, find a renter, or just hope it wasn't damaged somehow. And renters regularly stole and destroyed property. Vandalism of Japanese property was very common across the West Coast. Uh, The property damages are estimated to be between $1 and $3 billion, and that's not adjusted for inflation. And, you know, a a lot of people lost uh, a lot of property and a lot of their savings, you know, my mother being a widow, we didn't have a lot of money. But for instance, you know, my uh, my father-in-law, my wife's uh, father, was a very successful businessman in Ventura County. He ran several grocery stores, but they took him away. So, uh, you know, he lost, I think, literally, with, by today's uh, valuation, just millions of dollars. I know Judge Tashima was quite young at the time. But did Judge Tashima recognize at the time how unjust this was? He told me about movie nights when mothers of soldiers who had died overseas would be called to the front of the crowd and presented with a medal of valor. Young men who died fighting for the country that incarcerated them. It struck me, even as, you know, as a fourth, fifth grader, that it was, uh, something was not right about that scene. Hang on, the army drafted people from these camps? The same army that rounded them up and forced them to relocate? The boys turned 18, you know, they were drafted into the army, like, you know, all, all other young, able-bodied Americans uh, during World War II. And they will go off to basic training. At that time, they all got a 30-day home leave before they were shipped overseas. These boys were then, uh, they finished their basic training, and they come back to the camp to spend their you know, a last uh, annual uh, you know, pre-deployment leave uh, in an internment camp before going off uh, to fight. You know, it just didn't seem right. They the only thing, right, you know, an 18, 19-year-old can do is, you know, if you get 30 days leave, where are you going to go? You're going to go home, right? And, and their home was in the internment camp. I also want to point out that not every internee was drafted. Many voluntarily joined the military during World War II. Judge Tashima also told me that he would occasionally see wounded veterans, people on crutches or in wheelchairs who, after surviving the war, but not without injury, were sent back to camp, re-incarcerated. I feel like we really cannot overstate how frightening and confusing this period of time was for the people incarcerated in these camps. But we also need to emphasize how frustrating and unjust it must have felt. Fred Korematsu was one of many who understood that his rights as an American citizen were being violated, that his humanity was being stripped away. There were a number of people, young men, who refused to get drafted until their families were released from camp. And of course, government would accept a condition like that. So a number of people were tried in federal court, brought to West for violating the the draft act. And the sentences range, you know, anywhere from some got probation, some got as much as five years imprisonment. So the incarceration lasted until the end of the war. 
what was life like when it was all over? Well, when we first came back, uh, we went to what they called it a hostel. It was run by a church, almost like a like a budget motel, I guess, or even even more budget than that. And, and we lived there for uh, I would say almost a year, six months between six months and a year. And my mother owned the house, so I could get the house, you know, back and move back in. So uh, I know I spent my sixth grade in this hostel in Venice, California. There was no easy return to normal life after this period, with the exception, perhaps, of rampant racism being the norm. Even for a remarkably successful person like Judge Tashima. He graduated Harvard Law School in 1961. He had decent grades, and he was interviewed by some major firms. He says people were nice enough, but they just didn't seem anxious to hire him. One uh, hiring partner whom I got to know better years later from a big law firm in Los Angeles said to me, you know, he said, you know, well, he said, I'd like to hire you, but I just can't do it because our clients wouldn't stand for it. Uh, when he said that, you know, it occurred to me, well, that's why, you know, none of these people that I've interviewed, they were even sending me a note saying thanks for interviewing. And it wasn't just exclusion from the job market. It was the housing market, too. My wife and I were looking for an apartment and certain landlords said, well, I'm sorry, we can't, we can't rent to you. So it was quite open. So much of this is incredibly galling, both morally and constitutionally. But one detail that I find just incredibly sad is the shame that former internees felt for years following this period. It's like Karen said earlier, that weight of being blamed for the attack on Pearl Harbor, the psychological toll of your own government presuming you guilty without the option of proving your innocence. Karen didn't even learn her father had been a part of a major Supreme Court case challenging Japanese-American removal and relocation until she was in grade school. She heard it during a friend's oral report. And she wasn't the only one. Here's Lorraine again. Um, my parents, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles were incarcerated during World War II. And like many um, people who had been incarcerated, they never talked about it um, when we were growing up. And so I knew, I learned about my family's incarceration during ethnic studies, during Asian American studies, which was really um, quite shocking and remarkable and horrible. Did the government ever do anything? Admit that these actions were wrong? or try to make up for it in some way? The government compensated for some, though not all, of the property and monetary losses to incarcerated people following the end of World War II. But it wasn't until 1988, through the combined efforts of a formerly interned California congressman and the Japanese American Citizens League, that the Civil Liberties Act was passed and surviving internees were granted $20,000 apiece. The language of the act makes clear that the government actions were based on, quote, race prejudice, war hysteria, and a failure of political leadership, unquote, rather than national security concerns. But while we're on the subject of what the country did to address the race-based forced confinement of 120,000 Japanese-American citizens and nationals, I feel like I can reasonably say not much this isn't taught. It's not required. It's not taught. I'm on the West Coast. It happened here in Seattle, and, and, and people don't know about it, and there's no requirement that teachers teach it. 
And so teachers um, have to find their own way. Karen Korematsu, Judge Wallace Tashima, and Lorraine Benai all emphasize the need for education when it comes to what to do with our legacy of incarceration camps. And plenty of people can agree that education about our past is important if we don't want to repeat that past. But Lorraine made me think about it in a pretty specific way, so I want to end on this idea. What do we do with this horrible, uncomfortable, racist moment? We learn what was lost, what was not defended in that moment. Because the moment that rights are denied to one person, they can be denied to anybody. In a specific way is is really the, and then they came for us kind of a thing, right? That, that, That what we're talking about as far as racism and sexism and ableism and all of that in this country is that it all rises from the same roots. And that's the root of intolerance and ignorance, right? And so so my sense is that it's so important that all of us be allies for each other, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it could be us next. And if we don't try to uphold dignity and humanity and the law for for other people, we're not we're not holding it up for One last thing I want to say is that this episode is being released at a time when anti-Asian sentiment and hate crimes are being covered widely in the press. This bigotry is known to be up right now, but was also probably underreported and insufficiently covered in the past. But to those who are surprised to learn about anti-Asian hate in the U.S. or who think this is a sudden thing tied to hateful rhetoric connecting China to the COVID-19 pandemic... I feel like this episode demonstrates that we don't have to look back very far to see broad, life-altering anti-Asian laws and actions and realize that precedent has long been set for anti-Asian hate. But of course, that's all we can do. Set precedent. And the way that we use the past to inform that precedent, whether we choose to learn from our troubling history, is kind of up to us. This episode of Civics 101 was produced by me, Hannah McCarthy, with Nick Capodice. Our staff includes Jackie Fulton and Mitch Skocky. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Music in this episode by Chris Zabriskie, BioUnit, and Zylo Zyko. You can find more resources on Japanese incarceration, the Supreme Court case Korematsu versus the United States, and of course, everything else we've ever made at civics101podcast.org. Our pursuit of what is going on and has gone on in this country is never-ending, so there will be so much more where this came from. You can make sure you never miss an episode of Civics 101 by following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... 
I have a charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.